two things happened. The first one was I understood repentance. I understood that I needed to stop being loyal to my own sin and stop looking for emotional assurance because that will fool you. That will fake you out. And the second thing that happened to me that changed my life was I read the book of Romans. And when I read Romans, I found assurance. And I found um, what, it's, what it's actually based in. You guys know this story, and I want to connect this at the beginning and at the end. When Jesus was dying on the cross, you recall that there were two thieves on either side of him. Now, one gospel says that both thieves were, were insulting Jesus, like in stereo. But in another gospel account, only one of them is. So at some point, one of the thieves on the cross got saved, and he repented. He was a desperate man. He was literally minutes from death. He needed salvation from sin, and he knew that he needed to die in peace, in, in assurance. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, is assurance. And specifically, kind of some, we might call them possessions, some things you own, possessions that you have as a believer in Christ to give you that assurance. And so that will overlap with justification, as you'll see here in a second. But we'll be in Romans 5, just 1 and 2. The, the most precious possession that we have is salvation itself. It's the very stamp of God's mercy in our lives. It tells us that we're, we're his. And what I want to show you are just five possessions, blessings that we have as a result of salvation. Now, Romans 5, 1 and 2 is just an introduction. It's an introduction to a super long list of blessings. It goes all through chapter 5. Um, these two verses are really just kind of a, a summary. And so we're just do the summary tonight. But it's majestic, it's lofty, it ends climactically focusing on the glory of God himself. And it only has really one direct application. An application is something that you're told to do. And the only application is to rejoice, to be happy in the fact that you have this assurance. So mostly it's just a statement of fact. So let's just read this together first. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's it right there. Now, I want to kind of work our way into it just so you understand that, that Scripture doesn't ever just happen uh, all by itself. It happens in context. Um, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul is showing that we have a need of God's righteousness, that we, we're not righteous in and of ourselves. And that section ends with a hopeless statement. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We didn't seek after God. We were away from God, and there was nothing we could do to please him at all. We weren't even interested in God. If somebody says they're interested in God, it's only because God decided to help them be interested in God. That's the only reason. And according to Romans 3, we have no interest in him naturally. In chapter 2, Paul says to the unbeliever, you're without excuse. You won't escape the judgment of God. You're stubborn, you're hard-hearted, you're unrepentant, and he says you're storing up the wrath of God. It's the idea of, of taking barrels and just filling them up with your sin, and God's going to dump it back on you at the end of time. And so Paul makes this kind of airtight case that we've broken the law of God so severely and so badly and so consistently, chapter 3, verse 19, every mouth may be stopped, means closed, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's a, that's a biblical way of saying that God will shut your mouth because you'll have nothing to say to him. You'll have no defense. There'll be nothing to say. 
But then Paul gives, I think, two of the best words in the whole Bible. In chapter 3, verse 21, he says, but now. And there's a whole difference. All of a sudden, the tone changes. And the rest of chapter 3, Paul shows that the righteousness of God comes apart from obeying the Lord. You can't keep the law. You can't do enough good things. All men have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but we can be justified, that's the word you're learning here, as a gift of grace. And it's just a gift. Paul brings to close really what's a gospel sermon in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. And he gives this illustration of Abraham, the patriarch of the Old Testament. He gives a declaration that Abraham was saved by faith alone. And so he closes his sermon with this illustration of Abraham being saved by faith. And he applies it directly to the reader. And he gives a concise and perfect presentation of the gospel. Chapter 4, look with me at verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our, what's that word there? Justification. It's what he was raised for. So now we can understand why Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, Therefore, and he opens this section with a two-verse doctrinal declaration of our position in Christ after we've been justified. This is not what happens to get you to salvation. It's after you've been justified. And it's kind of an announcement. It's an announcement of victory. It's an announcement of I win and I am victorious in Christ. And so in these two verses, I want to show you five possessions of salvation. And they're absolutely certain. They're airtight. The first one is pardon from sin. The second one is peace with God. The third one is permission to enter. The fourth one is permanence in Christ. And the last one is perfection and glory. The first possession, pardon from sin. Pardon from sin. Now, pardon for you guys is kind of an old-fashioned word. If you run into somebody, um, what do you say now? Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, that's right. Well, a generation ago, you would say, pardon me. And what you're asking for is forgiveness. I would like forgiveness for the fact that I was an idiot and closing my eyes while running down this sidewalk and running into you. Pardon means to be forgiven. So Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, probably already studied this, but in the New Testament, to justify, it always means to render somebody innocent, to make them just, to make them in the right position. Um, it's a simple action and it's a passive action. Nobody gets themselves justified. God does all the justifying. He's the, he's the only one acting here. The concept of justification is absolutely the center of the gospel. It's the middle of the gospel. Paul speaks of it nine times before we even get to chapter 5. And so it's, it's like raising this crescendo up to chapter 5 here. Now why is justification, why is pardon from sin such a precious possession? Well, the opposite of justification is condemnation where you're in the position that your mouth is closed, you have nothing to say, and we're delivered from the condemnation of our sins. I still remember this moment, and I'll remember this for the rest of my life. It's the moment that I knew I was a sinner, and I did something horrible. I was five years old, and I committed this horrible crime. The crime was I took chewing gum that I had, and I didn't feel like walking the 10 feet to the trash can, so I found a windowsill, and I just stuck it in the corner of the windowsill. Okay, that's not too bad, right? I mean, I didn't commit murder or anything. But the horrible part that I still remember is my dad coming to me and saying, did you put that there? And I said, 
No. It must have been the kids who lived here before us. Well, I didn't know that it was an old couple who lived there before us. There were no children there before us. And my dad just said, okay. And I still remember, I confessed that to him when I was like 30 years old. I said, Dad, I'm sorry. I lied. Oh, I knew you were lying to your teeth. He knew it the whole time. <laughs> but you know what I felt at that moment? I felt condemnation because I knew I was totally in the wrong. I was lying through my teeth. And I wasn't innocent. I wasn't holy. Justification pronounces in the halls of heaven that your sins are paid for, that you're not responsible for the penalty of your sin anymore. It's the pronouncement of God that says, from today on, you enjoy my favor, no matter what. It's a done deal. You enjoy my favor. It's the act of God by which he pardons every single sin of those who believe in Christ. And here's what's amazing. Anybody ever made their way through the entire Old Testament? Anybody read the Old Testament yet? The whole thing? All right. Anybody know how many laws there are in the Old Testament? Um, about uh, not quite six hundred and what is it? Thirty-four. Six hundred thirty-eight. You know what justification does? <laughs> justification says, in the eyes of God, you have kept every law of God perfectly, all the time from the day you were born. That's pretty phenomenal. That's an amazing gift. Now, justification doesn't set aside and it doesn't ignore the fact that God is just. What would you think of a judge who lets a serial killer go? You would think he was a bad man, right? So a, a, a just God doesn't ignore the law. He doesn't ignore justice. Justification announces that the requirements of the law have been satisfied. How is, it, how is God able to do that? To pronounce you innocent and yet satisfy the requirement of the law. That's what justification is. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I'll bet you'll hear this verse 200 times this week. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was paid for on the cross, and the result is God's offer of justification. Here's a good way to think of this. You are guilty before God of murder, of lying, of stealing, of cheating, of selfishness. If I had time, I would prove to you from Scripture that every one of you are guilty of every one of those things. And I am too. And so, there you are, standing before the judge. The one who has repented and has received Christ as Savior, this is what happens. You're standing before the judge, and you're chained, and you're handcuffed, and you're, you're shackled, and he pronounces you guilty. And he looks down at his judge's desk to mess with some paperwork or something. And while he's doing that, Jesus Christ walks into the courtroom and stands between you and the judge. The judge pronounces sentence. Sentence is death. Because the wages of sin is death. And as you're taken away, Jesus continues to stand between you and the judge. And that's all he sees. You're taken to the death chamber. And Jesus is put to death instead of you. And as he dies, your chains, your handcuffs, your shackles, they fall off. Because the penalty's been paid. It's been done. It's been taken care of. And now what happens is that when Jesus, being perfectly innocent, is, is raised from the dead, and when he, once again, with you, you're brought before the judge, Jesus stands between you and the judge, and of course the judge happens to be Jesus' father. And when the judge looks at Jesus, he sees the perfect, holy perfection of his son, and when he looks at you, who does he see? He just sees Christ. 
He sees Jesus. The death penalty has been paid. Justice has been satisfied. And yet you never paid anything personally. All you did was watch your chains fall off. And that's it. The true believer possesses pardon from sin. And it's God's gift. So another possession we have, we call it peace with God. Peace with God. Paul simply says, we have this. We have peace with God. It's a possession. It means to be joined to something. It's kind of an interesting word. It's not just peace with God, but it's being joined with God. There's a unity and a community. We're his possession. Now, some people think that when it says we have peace with God, that that's talking about having that warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart that all is well, and the flowers smell good, and the sky is blue, and Coke tastes really good, and I can eat Lucky Charms without my parents seeing me, and everything's good. That I have peace in my heart. There's an emotion. Others would say it's the peace that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those are admirable thoughts, and other texts would say that. But these two verses are doctrinal in nature. They're not speaking of anything emotional at all. They're just what you are, not what you feel. It's your position, your legal standing. Our sense of peace, your emotion of peace, that can go up and down, can't it? I can be on a roller coaster having the best time of my life, completely at peace with God and with my family and with the world. And then when the I see at the bottom that the track has come off, my sense of peace will go at that moment because I know I have eight seconds to live. You can be fooled into a sense of peace. I was fooled into a sense of peace when I was a kid because my parents were Christians. I was fooled into a sense of peace because we were in church all the time. I was fooled into a sense of peace because my parents were missionaries. I was fooled into a sense of peace because I read my Bible a lot. I got fooled all kinds of ways and I had the emotion of peace. So what is this talking about though? This isn't talking about the emotion of peace. This is talking about something that never changes, never gets different, and it's a much loftier concept. It's to say that it's not that I have peace so much as that I'm at peace with God. Now, what's the, what's the opposite of peace? It's war. It is war. Being at war with God. Probably none of you here would say, I've never been at war with God. I mean, I didn't wake up mad at God. I didn't wish that he would, he would go away. But legally, before the Lord, the day you were born, you were at war with God. You had already signed a declaration. Psalm 7, verse 11 and 12 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Listen to this picture. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Not wet, W-E-T, but wet, W-H-E-T, meaning to sharpen his sword. He's getting ready to use it. And he has bent and readied his bow. So this is a picture of God with a super sharp sword in the scabbard, ready to pull out, and his bow pulled and an arrow pointed right at your heart. Why? Because you're an enemy. And he's getting ready to judge. James 4, 4 says that the friend of the world is the enemy of God. There are no neutral parties. Now, what's neutral mean? It means that you're, you don't take sides. Hey, I'm not really on God's side, but I'm not against God either. The Bible doesn't say that. John 8, Jesus says that anyone who doesn't belong to God in Christ is the son of Satan. I mean, that's, that's pretty side-taking. I think this is a hard concept for us to accept as prideful people. I mean, when, when I was growing up, when I was your age, not only did I not think I was against God, I figured that God's whole existence was because I'm here. You know, Steve Swartz is, 
is around, and so God must be here because I'm so wonderful. I think we'd like to believe that before you're saved, maybe you're at least neutral. I mean, could I have all of you say how many hateful thoughts toward God you've ever had? Probably haven't had any. But according to the Bible, you are his enemy. To believe, though, that you are neutral, what it does is it, it makes the nature of salvation kind of not that big of a deal, that it's small. The New Testament never, ever says that God saves people from being neutral. Never says that. In fact, you are so close to acting like Satan that you're called the son of Satan. And there's no place in Scripture that says, oh, you're so close to being a Christian that saving you is just like going and getting you into the kingdom. No place that says that. Every person that gets saved was an enemy. I don't know about you, but when I read my Bible, I think it's natural to, to put yourself in the pages of Scripture. I remember being a little kid and reading about David and Goliath, and I always imagined being David. And I thought, I just picture myself swinging that stone and had no idea that it was the power of God, and I would imagine that. But I realized a number of years ago that every time I imagined myself in the pages of Scripture, I always imagined myself as the good guy, no matter what. I don't think that's accurate. Let me tell you what you would have done and what I would have done if you were in the pages of Scripture. When Noah was warning the world about impending judgment through a flood, in my sin and in your sin, you would have rejected the author of the ark. Did you know from the New Testament we know that Noah probably preached the gospel for a hundred years and nobody but his family believed him? We would have participated in the rebellious building of the Tower of Babel. You would have been a part of that. We would have thrown Joseph into the pit and sold him into slavery. We would have fashioned and worshipped the golden calf in the wilderness. We would have worshipped the false gods in the high places. We would have made fun of John the Baptist when he cried out for us to repent. We would have fallen away when Jesus said that the cost of following him is high. We would have been in the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. And we would have, if I had had the chance, I would have taken the hammer and I would have taken the nails and I would have put it in Jesus' wrists and in his feet. And you would have too. Never place yourself in the character of the good guys. You know how I know you would do that? Because you were born as an enemy of God and all of those things are what enemies do. They rebel against that which they hate. But I love this verse. Look at Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were, what's the next word? Enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When did God save you? When does he save people? While they're enemies. While they're enemies. Paul explained in Colossians 1 that God made peace with me through the blood of Christ. That that's how he made peace. So you possess pardon from sin and peace with God. When you were little kids, there were certain rooms in your house that you weren't allowed to enter. You weren't allowed to go get the, uh, go get the Windex and try it out as mouthwash. You, know, you weren't supposed to do that. You were restricted from certain areas. Well, we've been restricted from entering into God's presence. The third possession we have is permission to enter. Permission to enter. Paul says, through him we have also obtained access by faith. We've obtained access by faith. Access is a, it's a technical term. 
And it's used in other documents outside the Bible in Bible times to mean a security escort. As somebody who escorts you into a place that's restricted. Um, it's the same word used to speak of escorting a ship to a safe harbor. Is that my own phone? That's my own phone, isn't it? It's also used to, used to speak of escorting somebody to meet somebody. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, if, if I'm going to uh, take Nathan here, now I want to introduce him to James. Access is the person who stands in between. I would grab his hand and I would say, come over here. You don't have to really. Come over here and meet James. There's an introduction. Just try this sometime. Try walking up to the White House and bang on the front door and just walk in and say, I'd like to meet the president. Where is he? And start walking through. What's going to happen? You're going to yeah, you're going to die. You're going to be in jail. Something's going to be. You're going to find yourself suddenly Swiss cheese at the bullets of the Secret Service agents. But what if somebody who knows you and knows the president says, "I'd like to introduce you"? That's access. That's permission to enter. To the Jew, the idea of direct access to God was unimaginable. You wouldn't even think about that. At Mount Sinai, God told Moses to warn Israel. He said, go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. When the tabernacle was like a big tent was set up, and then later the temple was constructed, there were super strict boundaries to keep men separated from the direct presence of God. That was The, the separation from God was an integral part of Jewish life. I mean, that's just uh, They wouldn't say the name of the Lord, they wouldn't talk about him in direct terms, and certainly they would never say, I want to see God. But now, uh, this is totally different. We're given access. We're given an introduction to God the Father. And we're introduced by none other than God the Son. And when Jesus brings you into the presence of God Almighty, uh, how, how would you dress to go meet God? I think you'd wear your best, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you have any clothing good enough to wear for God? No, you don't. Do you think you would wear your best behavior? Yeah? Yes. Is your behavior good enough to go meet God? No, not even close. And so you had to be redressed, so to speak. You couldn't come in your own dirty clothes. Jesus had to wash you in his own blood. He had to make you righteous. He had to make you perfectly able to go meet the Father. That's what gives you permission to enter. I've heard, I've heard kids... I've spent years counseling kids your age. Kids that are messed up on all kinds of things. Drugs, you name it. And I was asking, what's going to happen when you meet God? I hear this all the time. Oh, me and God, we're like this. We're, we're buds, we're pals. Uh, I'm just going to explain to them. You know, my mom was doing this, and my dad was somewhere else. and I'm just going to explain things to God. Remember what Romans 3 says? Every mouth will be what? Shut. Nobody's going to explain anything to God. The only way you get to meet God in good, favorable circumstances is if Jesus takes your hand and God the Father's hand and puts you together. That's the only way. There's a fourth possession you have. Once that permission to enter happens, you have permanence in Christ. Permanence in Christ. Now, what does permanence mean? There's an easy way to think about this. You're eating a hot dog and you spill mustard all down your shirt. And instead of washing it, you go... And you rub it in, and then you present it to your mother. And she's going to go, you know why she's going to make that face? Because it's permanent, because it's never coming out. So she's just going to put mustard all over the shirt and make it yellow because it's never coming out. 
Permanent says it can never go away. It's forever. Verse 2 says, into this grace in which we stand. Something you're, you're in, you're a part of. We're not saved by God's grace and then somehow preserved by our own efforts. Jude 24 promises that God alone will make us stand in the presence of his glory blameless. Standing in grace means you're always in the boundaries. You're always in the right area. Um, I remember being a little kid and being taken to a public pool and I couldn't swim yet. And I was put in the little, the, the little uh, shallow end, which is only like a foot and a half deep. And I was shown a black line. And the person who took me said, don't go over the black line. Well, guess what I tried to do? He challenged me. I go over the black line. I was no, and, I, and I'm way over my head, and I feel this thing grabbing my my neck and pulling me back, coughing, knocking the water out of me. Don't go over the black line. Okay, I won't. I won't go over <laughs> anymore. Standing in grace means that you'll never go over the black line. God will never let it happen. You'll always be in the shallow end. You'll always be where you're supposed to be. We're always within the boundaries of constant forgiveness. I've often, when I was your age, I often worried about what happened if I sinned and didn't ask for forgiveness and then died. And so if I was doing something dangerous, I was always asking for forgiveness like over and over and over again because I needed to time it out right. I needed to time it out to where um, if, if I was about to fall off a cliff, then, Lord, I'm sorry, boom. So like, just time it out, just right. But what is that? That's trying to preserve salvation by human effort. Standing in grace means I'm already forgiven. It always has been and always will be from the time I got saved. Paul says standing in grace, it's an obvious picture of showing something that's permanent. It's stable. It's forever. God doesn't save someone only to lose them again. And it's like saying that a butterfly can become a worm again. It doesn't happen. There's also a sense of protection. I love what 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5 says. It says that we have an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Anybody know what Fort Knox is? Oh, yeah. All right, what's in Fort Knox? Gold. Gold. All right, now imagine this. On your 18th birthday, this lawyer comes into your house. He's wearing a suit and tie. It looks like a $10,000 suit. His shoes are made of gold. He comes in with his document and he says, Josh, just want you to know, you have inherited Fort Knox. All the gold in it is yours. You can't have it until you're 60, but it's all yours. It's guarded by an entire infantry of soldiers. There are helicopters. It's guarded. Now, all of you would suddenly say, Josh, you're my new best friend. You have all this. What you would feel like is, okay, I don't have it yet, but I am certain that I'm going to have it. It's protected. It's guarded. That's what God says in 1 Peter 1 about salvation, that it's guarded. It's guarded like Fort Knox. Nobody can take it away, ever. Now imagine this. A few months ago when Star Wars Episode Seven came out, our family planned for months to see this. I mean, we planned our life around this movie. Uh, we bought tickets. We fully expected to get in. Right after it came out, and I want you to imagine this. Who's seen episode seven? All right, okay. So you're in line at the theater. Imagine this. And you're thinking you're about to go, you're about to get to go see it. And as you get closer and closer, you notice something disturbing. 
As you get closer to the door, the ticket taker is looking at people's tickets. To some of them, he's saying, go on in. And others, he's saying, I'm sorry, this ticket is not good anymore, ripping it up and sending them away. And the closer you get, more and more people are getting sent away. And you're getting nervous. You're sweating all over your ticket. And you're looking at it, wondering, did I have the, the wrong ticket? And as they turn more and more people away, you're getting nervous. Now, let's multiply that times a million. Imagine this, that you're getting to the end of your life and you think that you have been saved. You think that you've been forgiven. You think that your sins have been made right. And you're standing before God and imagine him saying, I'm sorry, the ticket that you thought was good is no good anymore. Depart from me. That's a horrifying thought. But verse 2 says we stand in his grace. Your ticket is always good. It won't ever be revoked. The believer in Christ says, pardon from sin, peace with God, permission to enter, permanence in Christ. One more, perfection and glory. Perfection and glory. This is going to be the hardest one for you to relate to because it's the farthest one away from you. Verse 2 says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's the idea of the hope of seeing the glory of God. I've only known one 16-year-old um, who desperately wanted to see the glory of God, and that was because she had cancer. And she didn't have a life anymore, and she was, her body was being ravaged by this disease. And she was a believer. Um, that's not the case for you. You still have your whole life ahead of you. So it's, it's going to be difficult for you to understand this. So I want you to try and grasp it. Rejoicing in the hope of glory of God. It's the idea of... And this is really an accurate idea in Scripture. It's the idea of bragging. I'm bragging. I'm boasting that I get to go to heaven. Now, if you're bragging that you get to go to heaven because of something you did, then that's not right. That's not, that's not clear from Scripture. But if you're bragging, I get to go to heaven because of what Christ did, Paul calls that boasting. In fact, he says, I will boast in the cross of Christ. I will brag that I'm a child of God. That's what this is, rejoicing in hope. It's a sense of anticipation. It's a sense of wanting to um, wanting to experience this. Have you ever had like this horrible, awful stomach flu and you suddenly don't want to do anything and thoughts of death sound really, really good? <laughs> yes. And then you start to feel a little bit, just a little bit better. And just the thought of getting to, to have a glass of water and keep it down or the thought of getting to eat a bowl of cereal again or something, just those little things sound so good. Well, this is that sense of anticipation that not just that you're legally justified before God, which says that you're counted as righteous, but that someday you'll actually be able to stand before God because you are righteous, because you're just like Christ, that there's nothing between you and the Lord. Every one of you have sinned today already, multiple times. Some of you are sitting right now because you're thinking, I'd rather be asleep. <laughs> but there will be a day when you never have anything come between you and the Lord. That's rejoicing in the hope of glory. Well, with our pardon from sin, our peace with God, permission to enter, permanence in Christ, perfection and glory, the only right response is to rejoice. Now you have your whole lives ahead of you. And I understand that it's hard to think about perfection and glory. I mean, right now you're, you're thinking about what are we going to do tonight? What am I going to do in the morning? And I understand that. And it's hard to think about the future beyond next year. It's hard to think about the future beyond next week. It's just the way you're built. And I, and I love that. 
you're teenagers, you're physically, you're in your prime, you can eat horrible, terrible food, and whereas I would be in the hospital for a month, you just kind of go, oh, okay, and then you're done. Your bodies are, are pristine, and you're, you're ready to go all the time. It's very hard to think about eternity. But when I was in high school, I had two good friends among several, Joe and Eric, but Eric went by Flash. Eric went by Flash because he was, he was just as cool as could be. He was an African-American young man, always dressed beautifully, always looked sharp, insisted on being called Flash. Joe, on the other hand, was kind of a slob and kind of just dressed weird, but probably the most talented electric bass player I'd ever known to that point. He had a huge career ahead of him. He already had offers from uh, from bands to go play as soon as he graduated from high school. And Eric Flash was also a musician. He was a talented drummer. And those guys were, were amazing. We hung out together a lot. Joe, the talented bass player, promising career ahead of him. Flash was a drummer, but Flash was attracted to something. He was attracted to uniforms. So he decided to join the United States Marine Corps and thought that that would, that would give him the uniform. And that's what he said. I'm joining for the uniform. I'm joining to take that picture in the, in the white hat and the sword and the white gloves. That's what the whole thing is about. And so we would kid with him about that. We hung out a lot. And I got to tell you, during our four years together in high school, eternity and God and sin and salvation never came up in conversation once in the countless hundreds and hundreds of hours. And we had our whole lives ahead of us. We all had talents. We had things to do. We had achievements to accomplish. A few weeks after graduation, Joe, the bass player, drowned in a river. He was swept by a current under a rock. He couldn't get out. And I was told it took about five minutes to die. Flash finished basic training in the Marine Corps, and the night before he was going to ship out his division to go overseas, at the age of 19, he died of a heart attack. This guy who always had it all together. It is never too early to think about eternity. It's never too early to get your accounts right with the Lord and to make certain you have this wonderful assurance that when God saves a person, he keeps a person. You know, somebody can say, well, I'm going to win this war against God, but you won't. Nobody will win a war against God um, because God's love for the repentant is only equaled by his wrath for the unrepentant. Remember the thief on the cross next to Christ? I, I love him. I can hardly wait to meet him. And I'll tell you why. He proves that you can do nothing to be saved. Because you think about this. His hands were nailed to the cross, so he couldn't do a good work for God. His feet were nailed to the cross so he couldn't go someplace that would be pleasing to Christ. And his body was dying so he couldn't make any deals with God. He couldn't say, if you save me, I'll do something for you. There's nothing he had to offer whatsoever. All he could do was ask Jesus, remember me. Remember me. It was a cry of repentance and a cry for mercy. But you know that Jesus made one statement? And in that one statement, he gave the thief on the cross all five assurances of salvation. He said, this day you will be with me in paradise. In that one statement, he gave pardon from sin. How do we know that? No one enters heaven unclean. Therefore, he had to be pardoned. 
He gave him peace with God. Today you'll be with me. You're not at war with me anymore. He gave him permission to enter. Today you'll be with me. He gave him permanence in Christ. He didn't give any, any stipulations, any conditions, anything he had to do. He just said it's a sealed deal, and he gave him perfection in glory. Because if the thief entered into paradise, it guaranteed that he would be glorified, he would be made just like Christ. So in one statement, Christ issues all five of those assurances. And, you know, my hope for you is that you're not faking it like I did in high school. When I was getting ready to drive away to college, I, I met a buddy who would end up being my roommate. Remember I told you that I lived a double life? I had my daytime life where I was, I was, I could cuss like a sailor, I could talk about anything dirty and nasty, and I could do anything. And then my nighttime life where I'm begging God for forgiveness, and my church life where I'm I'm acting all good and, and playing my trumpet in church and playing piano in church and doing all kinds of things in church. Well, I met this guy, we're gonna go out to school together, and I had a choice to make. Which one was I gonna show him? Was I gonna show him my fake Christian y self, or was I gonna show him my real self? I gambled and I showed him my real self. We spent all day together, and I I cussed like a sailor, and I told them all the dirtiest, nastiest stories I could think of, and I just showed them how tough and grubby and down and dirty I could be. And we got to the end of a long day together where we were hanging out, getting ready to leave, and I said, so what do you want to do when you finish school? And he said, well, I love Jesus Christ, and I'm going to go overseas and tell other people about him. What about you? You know what I did that night? We drove all night. I gave him the keys to my car. I buried myself in pillows, and I repented. And I told the Lord, I am a fake. I'm a fraud. And I spent all night listing every way I could possibly think of that I had tried to fake out the Lord because I found somebody who was real, and he exposed me. He exposed me. So I hope that you will make that same judgment call for you and that justification will be a precious, precious word to you because it describes you. That's my hope. Can I pray for you? Let me do that. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for the cool weather. Thank you for these wonderful young young adults who leave them at a crossroads, Lord, who need to decide to come to faith in Christ. Those who have, I pray that you would give them these assurances that they wouldn't worry, they wouldn't be concerned, that they would sense that they do indeed have this possession of salvation. And that your spirit would minister and testify to their spirit that they are children of God. I pray for the rest of their time at camp. I, I'm so thankful that they got to come up here. I pray it would be a life-changing time, a super fun time, and a time where they could enjoy one another and build relationships that would last a lifetime, most importantly with you, and secondly with one another. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of getting to talk to them for a few minutes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.